today's reading comes from Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the, pow- by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray. Father, we thank you for the joy of Advent season, for the joy and expectation and anticipation in our hearts uh, of what this means for us, that Christ has come and that Christ will come again. And so, Father, as we look at this passage today out of Hebrews 1, and we consider what it means to be your people in this generation right now as we live, we ask you that you'd strengthen us by your Spirit, give us the wisdom we need to build our lives upon the foundation of your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, the desire that we had as a preaching team when we put together this Advent series, which has not necessarily gone according to plan here because of uh, a couple of different things, um, including, you know, having a guest preacher in the first week and a, and a sick preacher the second week, uh, the desire that we had was to look at the incarnation of Jesus in light of the Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. So the first week, Norm preached, Norm Funk was here, and he preached about the king, the king who was to come. Uh, the expectation of that king. Last week, Jake, if he was not ill, would have preached about the the priestly work of Jesus as Jesus came as the ultimate priest. And then today we're going to have a special look at Jesus as the prophet, the fulfillment of Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. And so really quickly, what I want to do is just establish the connection between those three Old Testament offices in in prophet, priest, and king, and the work of the prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament, and how those then connect to Jesus. And, and why we're having a conversation about this. Um, there was a time when Jesus was having a conversation with his disciples. We read this in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and in verse 15 he says to them, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now there's some significant things in this passage. Uh, the revelation that Peter has that Jesus is the Christ But what we want to look at is why does Peter say he is the Christ? What does that mean? Christ is the Greek term that we have in the New Testament that means anointed one. Its Old Testament parallel is the Hebrew term Messiah. Both of them mean anointed one. Anointed one. In the Old Testament, those who were set aside, set apart to fulfill three specific roles of prophet, priest, and king were all anointed with oil. They were marked with oil, dabbed with oil, oil poured over their head, different ways that it happened in the Old Testament. But what it was was signifying that something was going on in them, that they'd been called into something, that they'd been consecrated and set apart for a particular work in their generation as a prophet, a priest, or a king. So the priests who offered sacrifices in the temple, they interceded with God, before God, on behalf of the people. They were anointed with oil, the priests in the temple. Secondly, we see in the Old Testament that the kings who were anointed to lead the people, lead them into battle, uh, adjudicate the laws of God in their generation, in their people, these kings were anointed, chosen and consecrated, set apart for the service that they were called to unto God. And then we see the work of the prophets. They were anointed with oil when they were chosen to deliver the word of God to the people. 
So the connection between the anointing that's given in the Old Testament, in the prophets, priests, and kings, and the meaning of Christ as the anointed one explains why we would emphasize this threefold office of Christ. He has come to fulfill the work of the prophet, the priest, and the king. In the passage that you just heard read from Hebrews chapter 1, we see that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Hebrews 1.1, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in his last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is not only the prophet who tells forth the word of God, who proclaims the word of God in a particular moment of time, but he's the anointed prophet who most clearly reveals the nature and character of God and his plan for salvation and his will for our lives, both in his teaching and in his life. And so Jesus is the ultimate prophet. We're going to look at that more through the rest of the message. But before we go there, just see that Jesus is also the ultimate priest. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is not only a priest who makes purification for sins on behalf of the people, but he is the final anointed priest of God who makes the once and for all sacrifice and having finished his work then sits down where there's no more sacrifices needed. He is the ultimate, the final priest. And third, Jesus is the ultimate king. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, In these last days he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. It talks about this later on in verses 3 and 4, which we can look at later. But he appointed him as the heir of all things. This is actually coming out of Psalm chapter 2, if you really want to go and do some cross-reference work, and Psalm 110, which is very exciting. He's the king, the ultimate king, the king who ends all kings, the king of kings. The king that they expected. We're going to see this next week. He's not only the earthly king, but the eschatological king, which is what we're going to look at next week. The final king, the end king. The king who rules and reigns over all the cosmos from now till all eternity. So Jesus is the anointed one in the sense that he is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. He is the anointed one, the Christ. He's the anointed one par excellence. As prophet, Jesus is the advocate for God before people, revealing what is true. As the priest, Jesus is the advocate for people before God, revealing the way of salvation. And then as king, Jesus shows us how to live as his subjects and his citizens in this new kingdom under the revealed will of God. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. That's why we're calling this series the turning point of history. Jesus is the fixed point at the center of the universe who can help us to orient ourselves in the midst of this crazy world that we live in. He's the center of the whole thing. After Jesus came, nothing would ever be the same. So we need to look at his work as a prophet. We'll do it under these three headings. Why we need a prophet, the arrival of the prophet, and the message of the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Why we need him, his arrival, and his message. That's what we're going to look at. You okay? You with me? That was not confident, inspiring. 
Yeah, thank you. That's good. Why do we need a prophet? You know, what's a prophet? Like, we don't have a lot of those running around today. At least we don't acknowledge the ones we do have running around today as prophets. Why do we need a prophet? You know, uh, a while ago, a couple months ago, I was taking Jasmine. It was her 10th birthday, and she, we do a daddy-daughter date when the kids turn 10. So this is our third girl turning 10, and I get to go do an overnight trip with her somewhere, and she picked Victoria. She wanted to go to Victoria and see the whales, and so we said, well, we're going to go to Victoria and see the whales. And so we get on the ferry. We're standing on the ferry at Tawasin on our way to Swartz Bay. Standing at the front of the ferry, at the very front, we're standing there leaning over the railing, and she says to me, Daddy, are we moving? <laughs> Have you experienced this? When you're on a huge ship like this, and you all of a sudden can't tell if you're moving or not. We were looking out over the, what's the front of the boat called? The bow? Yeah, there we go. I'm from Alberta. It's landlocked. <laughs> we're looking out over the bow. We're looking at the horizon. We're looking at the water. And she says, Daddy, is the boat moving? And I said, I don't know, honey. And I turned around and looked, and there I could see in the distance the ferry terminal disappearing. I said, yes, we are moving, honey, because as a dad, I know everything. It's a very weird experience to be in that moment when you don't know that you're moving or not because your feet are firmly planted and as you look out around you, you're disoriented by the reality of surrounded, be, being surrounded by water and the boat is just beginning to move and you can't quite tell. It's like this if you're sitting at a stoplight, right? You sit at a stoplight and maybe you look down at something, which certainly is not your phone, and then you look back up and, you, and you're, you're, is that bus beside me moving a little bit or am I in reverse? Right? You ever have that, that, that sense of disorienting? kind of feeling as you're in your car on a boat. I had this sense when I was scuba diving. Um, if you scuba dive in the tropics, which is where you should scuba dive, it's beautiful and the water's clear and the visibility is limitless and it's just glorious. But if you scuba dive here, where, which I have, you get in the water and you can't see more than six inches in front of your face and you go, well, this is really fun. But what happens is, is if you get down to depth and all of a sudden you do lose visibility and you can't see more than six inches in front of your face, you have your gauges, but if you are looking around, you're all of a sudden caught off guard. You can't tell if you're ascending to the surface or descending to the depths. You can't tell if you're drifting and you can't tell if you're stationary because you've got no fixed point of reference around you. You don't know if right side is up or upside down. You don't know which way you are in the water because you usually have that point of buoyancy and you can get flipped around turned around separated from your group it's terrifying it's a disorienting experience similar to moving away from something that is fixed similar to sitting in your car and seeing something else move and you're not sure if you're moving or it's moving and you need to find a point of reference by looking at the street light you need to find something that doesn't move so that you can orient yourself again on your location of where you are this is a cultural problem that we live in in this moment of history, we are more disoriented around what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, than perhaps ever before in the history of mankind. There's an author named Abdu Murray, who was a former Muslim, now Christian. He's actually written about this cultural feeling of disorientation in a book called Saving Truth. This is what he said. As if to put an exclamation mark on this situation, again, the cultural feeling of disorientation, the Oxford Dictionary selected post-truth as 2016's word of the year. The Oxford Dictionaries annually select a word that captures the culture's current mood and preoccupations, and post-truth does exactly that. According to the Oxford Dictionaries, post-truth means 
relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. He says it's hard to think of a word better suited to the spirit of our age than post-truth. Okay, what he's getting at is that people in our generation care less if it's true than if they believe it. They care less if it's true than they do if it seems true to the person who's saying it. They care less about the truth than they do, and we, I can say, because this includes all of us, we care less about the truth than if it fits our agenda. We care less about if it's true or false. We, we care more about the way it makes us feel. And so our sense of the situation around us is actually informing our behavior to a greater degree than the truth of the situation around us. And that's why Oxford Dictionary chose it in 2016. There may have been an election in 2016 that brought it to the surface, but I'm not sure you should Google it or something. Because I'm not talking about that even though it's the easiest and best illustration to explore the phenomena of post-truth. So you should look it up. Basically, we're adrift in the waters of our culture and we're disoriented. And what happens is, is when we're disoriented and we've lost vision, we need a fixed point. We need to see a fixed point to reorient ourselves. Jesus, the prophet, helps us to see. We need a fixed point. We need something solid enough to build our life upon. We need an immovable point of reference that we can look at who never changes, who is the anchor of our hope, like we talked about last week a little bit, who tells us what is true. Not based on how you feel about it, but he tells us what's true. And you bring your feelings in line with that truth. When we're drifting and when we're lost, we've got this weird sense that things are moving, but we can't tell how. We need that fixed point of reference. Are we drifting? Are we lost? Are we upside down? Are we descending? Are we ascending? Where are we and what's going on? That's why we call this series the turning point of history. Because in a world that struggles to know how to reckon with truth, we need a word from outside of ourselves to anchor us. We need revelation that comes through a prophet to anchor us. In a world that craves answers to the disorientation of the cultural moment that we live in, that longs to build their life on something solid, we actually have a message to communicate to that world. When you talk to people in your life, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you know what this is like, and they look at you and go, why are you so stable? You crazy person who believes the crazy things. And you go, I have a fixed point of reference in my life. I'm tethered to it. I keep my eyes upon it, which means I know when I'm drifting and I know where the world is drifting. See, there's something that happens where we need this message of hope and truth in our lives. God has spoken to us in Christ, and he tells us what God is like. He tells us how we ought to live, and he actually tells us how to grasp a hold of the greatest freedom that has ever been offered. See, in a world of constant change, transience, we serve a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In a world where it seems like everything is up for grabs, where you have to figure everything out on your own for the first time, 
you can actually go back and look at a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is never changing and will never change on you and will not disappear from your midst. If you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, you will never be without a reference point for what is true and solid. You'll never be without a foundation that you can build upon. God has spoken to us through his son. There is only one fixed point that reorients us around what it means to be human and what it means to be alive and how we can know the truth about who we are and who God is. And his name is Jesus. And when we see him for who he is, we will have everything we need. He's the fixed point at the center of history. That's why we need a prophet. Secondly, let's look at the arrival of the prophet Jesus. The arrival of the prophet. Now, if you've been around Christ City for a while, um, you would know that back in September, we began our walk through the Sermon on the Mount, and I spent the better part of the sermon arguing that Jesus is the true and better Moses who arrived, that, Je that Jesus is the, the prophet that Moses spoke of, and so I did that back on September 15th, and so I'm not going to subject you to that again. But what I do want to say quickly is that in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses did say, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Okay, Jesus spoke of himself as this prophet. It's actually in Luke chapter 13, if you want to look it up. Jesus spoke of himself as this prophet. All the way through the Gospels, Jesus said, I only tell you what my Father tells me. He is acting and speaking on behalf of the authority of his Father. He is the prophet communicating the message of another. So Jesus reveals himself to us as. It's actually in John chapter 6, when Jesus does the miracle of feeding the 5,000 with the loaves and fishes. He does this miracle. The people in the crowd say, oh, this is the prophet we've been waiting for. People recognize that Jesus was the prophet that Moses was speaking about back in Deuteronomy that he had promised and that this prophet had arrived. Now, because I spent a lot of time making that argument a couple of months ago, and I love you very much, I'm not going to do it again, like I said, but I do want you to understand how the church understood this very early on. How the church understood the role of Jesus as the fulfilling role of the prophet, the ultimate prophet who was to come. We're going to go to Acts 3 in a second, but let me set this up for you. Jesus came, and he was born of the Virgin Mary. We're celebrating that through Christmas. He lived, he taught, he did miracles. He was betrayed, handed over to his accusers, falsely tried, beaten, condemned, crucified he died upon the cross outside of the city of jerusalem on the cross he was dead he was taken down he was buried in the tomb of joseph of arimathea a borrowed tomb he wasn't going to need it long jesus was buried his disciples were sad there was sorrow over the whole region their lord had died and they had lost their hope and Sunday morning, some women who followed Jesus went on the very first Easter Sunday, and they went to the tomb to embalm him in spices. And to their great surprise, when they showed up at the tomb on the first Sunday morning after Jesus' death, the first Easter Sunday, Jesus was not there, he was risen. They were amazed, astonished. They went back and told the rest of the disciples, Jesus is not there, he is risen. And they were like, I don't believe you. So they ran there and had a look for themselves and went, true, he is not there, he is risen. And they're gathered together on Sunday night of the first Easter Sunday. 
And they're locked in a room together, and Jesus appears to them. He begins to teach them. And over a period of 40 days, Jesus teaches them all the things about the kingdom of God. He teaches them all sorts of things about the kingdom of God, including how to read the entire Old Testament in light of the fact that he is the prophet, the priest, and the king who came. He teaches them how to read the whole Old Testament in light of his arrival, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then he teaches them about the mission of the kingdom that he is sending them on from then forevermore. This is what's going on. He actually tells them after the 40 days, he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So they go to Jerusalem and they wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There they see Christ ascend on high and they wait a period of 10 days in prayer asking God that he would meet them in a significant way and they're praying and they're together and they're having fellowship with one another and all sorts of things are happening and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them and all of a sudden something changes. The disciples who were once locked in a little room by themselves are now full of courage and power in the holy spirit and they begin to proclaim the message of the gospel this is in acts chapter one and two thousands of people come to believe that jesus is the christ the anointed one the messiah promised in the old testament that he came as the perfect prophet priest and king and that he rules and reigns forevermore thousands of people come to believe that in the early stages and then we move into acts chapter three In Acts chapter 3, this is what happens. It's an amazing scene because Peter and John are on their way to a prayer meeting like all good disciples of Jesus. They're on their way to a prayer meeting at the temple and they walk by an invalid, somebody who had been lame from his birth. A famous beggar. You know in your neighborhood, the guy that you see all the time on the same corner, that's his spot, that's his turf. You know him, you buy him coffee. They know him. Everyone knows him because for his whole life, this guy who has been lame from birth and unable to walk sits there beside that gate at the temple. And he comes by, Peter and John come by, and this guy says, could you give me some money? And they say, we don't have any money, but we will give you what we have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, they say, rise up and walk. And Peter reaches out and he grabs the man's hand and he stands him up. And God heals his legs, heals his feet, strengthens his ankles. And it says that the man begins to rejoice and jump. And they go into the temple. And when all of the people around who are not yet followers of Jesus see this man who was the well-known lame man standing or sitting beside the gate for his whole life is now standing and jumping and rejoicing in God, there's something that happens and a crowd begins to form and they're all looking at Peter and John. And Peter, because he's a preacher, understands what just happened. I just got a crowd. And he begins to to preach. He says, this man was healed in the name of Jesus. This man was healed by faith in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the anointed one that God had promised who came. He healed him. And these guys go, Jesus? And he goes, yeah, that Jesus, the one that you killed a few weeks ago. And the crowd goes, oh. Peter says, you missed it. God sent his promised Savior This man was just healed in his name, miraculously healed in his name. You missed it. But he says, I want to tell you something. And he goes on. It says in verse 17 of Acts chapter 3, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. 
This is Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts, if you're interested. Both of them have that word. Pretty important. We should pay attention to that. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, look at this, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. All the prophets have spoken this. He is saying that, hey, you guys who believe in Moses, remember back in Deuteronomy 18 when he said that there would be a prophet who would come like him? Well, he came. His name was Jesus. You killed him. Repent, therefore. Yield your hearts to him. Turn and follow Jesus. Peter says, this healing that has caught your attention, this lame man who can now run and jump, he's not the focal point of what's happening here. Peter says the point of what's going on here is that the promised prophet has come just like Moses promised and you missed him. Peter says the healing is not the center of the story. The center of the story is Jesus. The center of the story is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is Jesus Christ, the center of the story, the crucified king who is now risen, who has poured out his Holy Spirit on us, his people, and we proclaim the gospel in power. And you see signs of the proclamation that we make in the fact that an invalid was healed. In a world that needs to know what is true, Peter's trying to tell these people that they had seen a miracle that was foretold by the prophets because of the prophet who would come. That God would speak most clearly, not through the prophets, for they only pointed forward to the one who would come as the ultimate prophet, communicating the truth and hope of God to the rest of the world. See, in a world that needs to know what is true, we have an anchor for our hope. God has spoken. And so I want to ask, are we listening? In the world that we live in, we need a prophet. And we have the arrival of the prophet here. And we see what happens in the arrival of the prophet. The disciples say, this is the prophet who we were expecting. And we serve him. And he does things that you could never imagine. It's why we need a prophet. It's the arrival of the prophet, but the message of the prophet is so important. The message of the prophet. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author of Hebrews says, in past times, God spoke in various times and in various ways. 
you look through the Old Testament, you can see how God spoke to the prophets. The appearances of what they would call the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. The prophets who spoke, the poets who wrote songs and hymns in a prophetic way. In the Old Testament, he spoke at various times in various ways, but the author of Hebrews says, now, in our time, God has spoken once in one way. He's spoken in various times and in various ways, but now God has spoken once in one way. In the past, God spoke at many times through many prophets and many signs, and in this time and now forevermore, God has spoken once through his son, the ultimate prophet who does not just have a message for this world, but who is the message for this world. He's spoken to us in his son. He's told us what is true by revealing his son. In Christ City, if we get this truth straight in our hearts, if we get it down deep in our soul, all of the other questions that we have about things that are happening all around us start to fall into place doesn't mean there's an answer for every single question that we have. It means that we see things in the right order of importance and priority. If we get this, that God has spoken in his son, if we get this truth grounded, your marriage makes sense. Your work makes sense. Your pain makes sense. Your sorrow makes sense. Your joys make sense. Our joys aren't muted because of this. Our joys are lifted. But I also want to say our sorrows aren't muted. But our sorrows and our wounds are mended. If you get this straight, you can endure anything that comes. Listen, if you get this straight, there's forgiveness for sin. I wasn't planning on talking about this. I think somebody here needs to hear this. If you get this straight, there is sin that can be forgiven, not only before God, but you can forgive another. I don't very often do this, but whoever needs to hear that today, God's grace is sufficient. Jesus says, after he teaches his disciples to pray, we pray, our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, all, all the way through. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, to pray he, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, right? He says, if you don't forgive the sins of any, your sins aren't forgiven. God has told us what is true by revealing to us his son. If we get this truth straight, it squares every twisty way in our life. Every wandering, meandering path actually has a focus to it. This text tells us seven things about Jesus that will completely change the way you live if you'll apply them to your life. This is the fixed point of truth that you're looking at, that you're looking for in a post-truth generation. This is the fixed point of truth. These seven things in these three verses 
that are all anchored in Jesus and Jesus' revelation of God to us, this will change the way that you live. Everything else going on around you, all of the shifting things in culture, everything else that seems to give way, all of that, if you don't know how to look for your anchor, is going to bother you, stress you, concern you, and give you anxiety. But if you have a fixed point of reference in a post-truth world, you don't need to worry about how things are making you feel and then running your life based on that. You can live your life based on what's true and line your feelings up with that truth. Let me show you what I mean. Seven things. I promise this is not seven additional sermons. First, we see in this text in verse 2 that Jesus is the rightful heir of all things. It's all his. He is the rightful heir of all things. It means he receives it. It's his. It's his inheritance now and then forevermore. When we talk about this as the king next week, the king who comes, he's coming back. And he'll rule and reign for all of eternity over all things, over the world and everything in it. It's all his. And you're his and he is yours, and he is your Lord and Savior, and he is the king we long for. And when you feel detached, and you feel adrift, and you're not sure what's happening around you, and you don't know where to go and what to do, just trust this. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over all things. You don't need to be afraid. It doesn't all have to make sense to you in this moment right now if you believe that he's the heir of all things. Just trust him. Secondly, Jesus is, it says in verse 2, the creator of the world, which means this didn't all come out of nowhere, which means it's not all going nowhere. It's all headed somewhere. So rejoice as you anchor yourself as a creature in the created world by connecting with the truth that comes from the creator God. He is creator, everything else is creation. There's your categorical separation. Right? Like, like, 325 AD, there's something called the Council of Nicaea. Just a little theology nerd nugget for you. You'll love it. Now, you might not. I don't care. (laughs) At 325 AD, they had a huge council about whether or not Jesus was divine or created. Massive, big church council drew everybody together, made a decision that Jesus is divine because that's what the Bible teaches that he is, if you have the categorical separation, not part of creation, but he is the creator, right? 325 AD, around Christmas, they're arguing over whether Jesus is God or something created by God, if he's the creator or part of the creation. You know, 2019, we still argue if Die Hard is a Christmas movie. That's That's where our arguments are about. Creator or creation? He's the creator of the world. Third, because I told you they wouldn't be sermons, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Um, Scholar George Guthrie says, one cannot separate the experience of looking at the brightness of a light from seeing the light itself. You can't separate the experience from the act of doing it. They're too closely associated. So he says to see the sun, Jesus, is to view God's glory or manifest presence. So the radiance of his glory is the manifestation of the person and presence of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. It's like if F.F. Uh, F. Bruce is another scholar. He said it's like looking at the sun in the sky. He says the sun, we can feel its heat. We can see its light. So Christ, he says, shines with the radiance of the glory of God. We know where the sun is. We know where it is located in the cosmos. 
but we feel its heat and we see its light. He says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the same way. When the radiance of the glory of God shines into our lives, what it means for us is that we'll never walk in darkness. There's always a fixed point of reference for you in the midst of any turmoil and situation and stress you're in. Fourth, Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Again, it's in verse 3. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. It's, it's, all, it's like the imprint on a coin. We're watching the crown because I love my wife. And, and one of the, season three, episode one or two, I think, because they're painfully long. <laughs> She's getting a new likeness to be stamped into all the coins, right? Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. You don't have to wonder what God is like. You look at Jesus. If you wonder what God is like, look at the Gospels. In a transient world where everything changes, God has stamped something on our lives. God is speaking in his son. He says, here's how you know what is true. Here is your fixed point of reference in a post-truth world. When everything else changes, when everything else moves, when everything else is drifting, and you wonder if you're drifting to or fro, you can look to Jesus, who has revealed the nature and character of God to us once and for all. Jesus says, I'm not changing. Five, Jesus sustains the universe by his powerful word. In the midst of all the terror and fear, and it's such a, a sad thing to talk to parents who have children in elementary school who are coming home with something that has now been diagnosed by, scientists, or by, by counselors as climate anxiety. Fifty years ago, it was nuclear anxiety. There's always been an anxiety. Is the world going to blow up and disappear because of nuclear war? Is the world going to end because we have not stewarded creation properly? These are the anxieties of our age, the terror that actually rules over us at times. But in this, we understand that Jesus is not only the creator of the universe, but the sustainer of it. And he is good holding it all together. We don't need to be afraid. That's not to deny all the stuff that's going on. It's just that we have a fixed point of reference where we don't need to fear. He is sustaining us and the cosmos. Sixth, Jesus once and for all makes purification for sins. He is the, it says in, in Timothy, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one mediator. He is the final, ultimate high priest who not only makes a sacrifice, but is himself a sacrifice. He makes purification for sins. He makes a way for us to be saved. He makes a way for us to be cleansed of our sin. He makes a way for us to be made new. Jesus came and purified and made purification for sins. You can be assured that you're right with God if you hook yourself to Jesus. In a shaky world with a lot of uncertainties around us, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus say something new has begun in us, and that newness of nature can be yours if you'll take hold of it, if you'll trust him. Seventh, Jesus is seated in supremacy, ruling and reigning over all things at the right hand of God. That's in verse 3 as well. 
He's seated, and I want you to notice that. Because he isn't like the other priests who were always standing, making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for the purification of the sin of the people. Jesus is seated because he came and made a once-for-all final sacrifice as he died in our place and for our sins, and then he sat down because it is finished. You don't need to be looking to anybody else in this world other than Jesus to receive your salvation. He's seated in supremacy, ruling and reigning over all things. There's no anxiety here. He's seated. There's one time, I think, in the Bible where it says that Jesus is seen standing at the right hand of God the Father. It's when in Acts chapter 6 and 7, where we talk, learn about Stephen, it's where Stephen's being martyred, and Stephen is standing there. He's getting hit by stones, and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. I don't think he was standing because he was anxious. I think he was standing because he was proud. The faithfulness of his boy, Stephen. Jesus is seated on the throne. Not running around fretting picture is one of majesty he's seated in supremacy ruling and reigning over all jesus is lord it's not just a declaration for us it's actually something that should comfort us jesus is lord which means you're not so it's not on you to be the fixed anchor point for anybody else in your life we point to the fixed anchor point we we point to the point of reference that keeps us holds us secure and strong. In a post-truth world of anxiety and uncertainty, Jesus is that fixed point of reference who grounds us and anchors us in the truth. Jesus is the rightful heir of all things. He's the creator of the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He sustains the universe by his powerful word. He is Once and for all, he has once and for all made purification for sins, and he is seated in supremacy, ruling and reigning. Ruling and reigning till he returns. Ruling and reigning, waiting for the fulfillment of days where he comes and reveals himself to us in power and glory. And we'll be with him forever. Would you stand with me as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.